Tonight's reading comes from Ephesians 4, verses 1 through 16. Therefore, I urge you, a prisoner for serving the Lord, beg you to lead a life worthy of your calling, for you have been called by God. Always be humble and gentle. Be patient with each other, making allowance for each other's faults because of your love. Make every effort to keep yourselves in the unity of the spirit, binding yourselves together with peace. For there is one body and one spirit, just as you have been called to one glorious hope for the future. There is one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and father of all, who is over all, in all, and living through all. However, he has given each of us a special gift through the generosity of Christ. That is why the scriptures say, when he ascended to the heights, he led a crowd of captives and gave gifts to his people. Notice that it says he ascended. Clearly that means Christ also descended to our lowly world and that someone who descended is the one who ascended higher than all the heavens so that he might fill the entire universe with himself. Now these are the gifts Christ gave to the church, the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers. Their responsibility is to equip God's people to do his work and build up the church, the body of Christ. This will continue until we all come to such a unity in our faith and knowledge of God's son, that we will be mature in the Lord, measuring up to the full and complete standard of Christ. Then we will no longer be immature like children. We won't be tossed and blown about by every wind of doctrine and teaching. We will not be influenced when people try to trick us with lies so cleverly they sound like the truth. Instead, we will speak the truth in love, growing in every way more and more like Christ, who is the head of his body, the church. He makes the whole body fit perfectly together. As each part does its own special work, it helps the other parts grow so that the body, the whole body, is healthy and growing and full of love. The word of the Lord, brothers and sisters. This this summer we've been asking you to imagine what it might look like if we were an urban monastery. And we've been using this little definition, an urban monastery seeks the peace of the city by offering a school for the Lord's service and extending hospitality to guests. And I've been giving you little illustrations from church history. And tonight, uh, recent church history, uh, an urban monastery in Walltown near uh, Durham is called Rutba House. And those are the members there. They all moved in in 2003 uh, into this neighborhood in Durham. And there's 14 uh, different members, four kids. They live in the two houses. It's a very interesting arrangement. They have morning and evening prayer. They study scripture together. They have a car co-op. They don't share all of their funds. They share about 40% of their funds and uh, use them for kind of community and for hospitality to the neighborhood. The leader, and I think it's the one in the back, um, Jonathan Wilson Hartgrove is, is one of the uh, founders of a movement called the New Monastic 
movement or new monasticism. So there's an example of, of how the peace of a city is being sought by an urban monastery. And so we've been asking, uh, you know, if part of an urban monastery is a school for the Lord's service, what does that school look like? And we've been using Ephesians 4, 1 to 17 as a starting point to kind of play with a little bit. And particularly, verse 11, he gave the apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry. We've been uh, suggesting that those five gifted kinds of people might be seen as like the faculty in this school for the Lord's service. And we're taking a look at each gift along the way. Now, next week, we'll get a little break. Uh, Daryl Arnold, pastor of Overcoming Believers, good friend of mine. We have lunch uh, about every five weeks at Jackie's Dream over on McCullough Avenue. I, I, I recommend the hot chicken. Um, one of my dear friends will be coming in and preaching, then we'll move back to it. I'll be at, with my wife, uh, my son's wedding in uh, North Carolina. Uh, now, if you put the two of those together, wedding, North Carolina, next weekend, and you've been watching the news, there is a level four hurricane <laughs> barreling down onto North Carolina as we speak. And it's supposed to hit when? Thursday night, when my father and everybody else flies in for the wedding. So if you think of it, pray for us. The family meme has been going on text with all sorts of pictures of mud uh, because it is an outdoor wedding. And by the way, if you're, if you're single, ladies, the, the whole thing about the outdoor wedding. Um, <laughs> could we talk just for a minute? It, it is utterly marvelous, unless there's a hurricane, Okay. So just to think about what you're doing with the outdoor wedding. Okay. So pray, pray for us. Um, I actually did marry uh, a young couple in a tornado once. And uh, it was, uh, they're still married, so it's good. Um, so we've been talking about the prophet, and uh, I've been using this definition of, of a prophet. If we could pop that up there. Uh, a prophet is a man or a woman moved by the Holy Spirit to speak words that align people with God's will. And last week we looked at 1 Corinthians 14.3 and a number of other texts where it talks about this kind of interpersonal ministry of the prophet where God gives you something supernaturally you wouldn't naturally know to encourage, to inspire, to uplift, to, to, to align someone with God's purpose in your life. And tonight we're going to look at the more corporate nature of prophecy, how God uses prophets in the body of Christ to align the whole church to uh, get in sync with his will. Um, and if you have a Bible, Isaiah 62, 6 to 7 uh, is where we're going to be tonight. If you don't have a Bible, I, I think we're putting it up on the screen. Yeah. So this is a, a text from the Old Testament that describes uh, the, the ministry of the prophet. On your walls, O Jerusalem, I have set watchmen all the day and all the night. They shall never be silent. You who put the Lord in remembrance, take no rest and give him no rest until he establishes Jerusalem and makes it a praise for his earth. Now, the Hebrew word for watchman can mean one who keeps, preserves, guards, watches over, protects, warns, stays awake, waits for, or observes. observes. Now, there is an intercessory function for the prophet, but the, the Old Testament uses this idea of, of watchmen uh, and more for the, the, the way of kind of speaking into the community. Here's Ezekiel 3. God is saying to Ezekiel, Son of man, I've made you a watchman for the house of Israel. 
Whenever you hear a word from my mouth, you shall give them a warning from me. So these, these watchmen are never silent. And uh, the, the picture is from the ancient world where there were city walls and there were towers. And on top of the tower would be several watchmen. And they'd be there all night and all day long. And they did two things. They would look out and they would see if danger was coming and warn the community. But they also could look down inside the city and see what was going on at the gate, the place of business, or in the alleys. These were not big cities. The old city in Jerusalem today, you can walk around less than an hour. And so they were people that could see both what was going on in the community and the threats that were coming into the community, and they would warn and instruct the community about how to protect themselves and how to align themselves with God's vision. Some have described these prophets as covenant lawyers. Uh, You go back and God called Israel out of Egypt. He made a covenant with them. He said, look, this is how people under grace live. Israel would forget that. God would send prophets to say, come back. Let me align you back with the will of God. And typically they do two things. They critique. They show where someone or a community has departed from God's will. And they give hope. They cast a vision of what it might look like for people uh, if they return to God. And, and so there is a sense in which they are somewhat directional and that they will actually say to a community, you're heading this way, maybe you could go this way. Actually, maybe isn't a real common word in the Old Testament prophet. <laughs> uh, there, there's a directional component of, here's what you could do to get in sync with the will of God. And as I was preparing this this week, I kept thinking of my chiropractor, and how he would adjust me and try to line my body back up so it all works appropriately. And I think that's kind of what a, a prophet is doing. He's like a spiritual chiropractor that can see where you're out of alignment and kind of give direction to get you back in alignment with God. Now, here's an example. There's many examples, but Isaiah 58 uh, would be one example of uh, how this works. Um, pick it up in verse 4. He's talking about the worship in Israel. And, and he says, It will hold you fast only to quarrel and to fight and to hit with a wicked fist. Fasting like yours this day will not make your voice to be heard on high. Is such the fast that I choose a day for a person to bow down his head like a reed and spread sackcloth and ashes under him? You're going to call this a fast? Hey, let me tell you what a fast is. This is the fast that I choose to loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free, to break every yoke. Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house? You see what he's doing? He's saying, you have forgotten what true worship is. True worship is always linked to caring for the vulnerable. Let me tell you what it looks like. It looks like this. And then he ends, then shall your light break forth like the dawn and your healing shall spring up speedily. And then he goes on for four verses about the hope that comes when we align ourselves with God's purposes. So, I, I, think, I think I'm thinking this every week, that each of the five gifts, I think, this is probably the hardest one to talk about. Uh, I'm, I'm hoping that pastor and teacher are easier because we're more familiar to these, but I think this particular gifting is hard to talk about because we don't particularly know what to do with this person and their words can be hard to receive. 
Um, uh, a theologian, Sharon uh, Hody Miller, wrote an interesting post on this. Uh, she says, in my own context, my audience is mostly female, and in the world of evangelical women's ministry, the status quo is, quote, positive and encouraging. Messages for women are big on self-help, being enough, and speaking affirmation. This is an all-but-unspoken standard, and for years I followed it. I didn't want to lose followers by talking about controversial subjects. Instead, I opted for a manicured Instagram profile and inspiring quotes on my Facebook page. But this year, I realized the prophetic impotence of self-help messages. Encouragement does have its place, but as I considered the state of women's ministry and the disciples were making, I realized something. Knowing you are, quote, beautiful will not embolden you to acts of true courage. At its heart, these messages are fundamentally about us, which means they're powerless to resist a narcissistic culture. This, she says, has been a sobering realization for me. It forced me to ask whether I was contributing to the formation of women who would actually take up Jesus' cross and follow him, or was I nurturing a generation of women who felt great about themselves, but were totally unequipped to lay down their lives out of love and God, love for God and neighbor. Ow! How to kill a, a big ministry, huh? Maybe that's what needs to happen. Maybe that's what needs to happen. <laughs> I have another friend who's very gifted in, in this area, and I ask him, what, what, do you, what do you think about the role of the prophet? And he says, I think the role of the prophet in the church today is to help the church, both collectively and individuals, see where it is missing the mark by being conformed to a culture of power and possession. The prophet helps the church see where it is being more conformed to the culture of the here and now rather than the culture of the kingdom. And that means saying hard things. It means calling people and the organizations they have created sinful. That hurts. It also means helping to teach people how slight deviations from kingdom culture can pile up over time in a way that makes it easy to be blind to the ways we miss the mark. I think the prophet can also help people see how even their well-intentioned, unintentional, or uninformed actions can contribute to the infestation of our world with sin. That is, there can obviously be a role of the prophet in showing people their personal sin by putting a mirror in front of them, but that's not easy work. The hard work is to show people how their mere participation in systems of injustice help to perpetuate injustice. It's not easy to know how to coach people once this kind of complicity has been pointed out. It's really hard to totally disconnect from participation in worldly systems of oppression and domination. So this is really, really tough stuff, and I think we could talk about a lot of other areas. I was talking with another friend about just how hard it is to to, to actually awaken to the deception and the denial in my own heart. And I find this very challenging, um, in, in part because I love you, I want you to love me. My general assumption when I come here on Sunday night is that you've had a hard week, and that you don't need to get beat up. And so I gen- my first impulse as a pastor is to encourage you, to tell you you're beautiful. Some of that is very, very healthy, but I'm, be- I'm just beginning to wonder 
what would it look like for all of this to be active in our own body? I did something Friday I still don't know if I should have done. And I'm going to only share this with you because it just shows how hard this is to figure out for me. So we're talking to the fellows class. We're doing this class on uh, justice and uh, race relations in the Bible. And we've had them read a book called The Warmth of Other Sons, which I really recommend. It's the best introduction I know to the whole question of race. 500 pages. This is Bill Wilkerson. I think it won the Pulitzer Prize. And so they read it over the summer. We're talking about it. And it it traces the great migration through a beautiful telling of four stories of, of families that went for about 40 years from the deep south in the 30s to different parts of America and just what they experienced. Very, very powerful book. Incredibly well done. And here's what I said. and I, um, We were talking about sin and repentance. And, and I said that I am so tired of hearing young evangelical men confess the sin of masturbation. When I never hear any, and I picked up the 500-page book, I never hear anyone confess, oh dear God, somehow I've been a part of a 400-year system that has crushed the souls of other human beings. That, that somehow the Holy Trinity is freaked out by what some kid does in his dorm room and could care less about 400 years of systemic oppression. I get sexual purity, be sexually pure, don't look at pornography, I get all that. But literally, for God's sake, do you think we've become so myopic on some things that we've missed the forest for the, for the trees? You don't even have to go social with it. I'd much rather have a person come in to me and say, Doug, I've realized in my marriage, I'm profoundly selfish. Isn't that far deeper than, than a sexual sin? I know, don't do sexual sin. But you get, you get, you get my point? I think the enemy's kind of got us figured out. He gets us so obsessed with this that we miss... There are things so much worse, let me say that, so much worse that we should be repenting of. The deep stuff. The deep stuff. So a friend of mine sends me a sermon, and uh, it's by a guy named Greg Thompson. Um, if we could put his picture up there. Um, he was a pastor at a, a PCA church, Presbyterian Church of America in Charlottesville, Virginia, for 11 years. And he uh, did his PhD at UVA on Dr. King. And it, it really undid him. And so he resigned his church. Um, and he, he went kind of off the air. The, the, I've, I've heard a number of his sermons. He's one of the most gifted expositors I've ever heard in my life. Extraordinary. And he's gone off the air. He does not speak now except for this one, um, this one conference. It was the EPC, the Evangelical Presbyterian Church, 
their conference in, in uh, Memphis, and he spoke on what he called the trauma of white supremacy. And he tells a story, uh, and if anybody, if you'd like it, I can send you a link. It's on YouTube. You have to kind of find it, but you can find it. He talks about growing up in South Carolina. Best friend was black, also named Greg, about the horrifying day when they were before the teacher, and they both chuckled, and the teacher grabbed the black boy and shook him and uh, used the N-word and told him to wipe, wipe the smile off his face and essentially you know, threw the kid out of class. And that was the day when he realized we both did the same thing, and I was treated in an entirely different way. And he calls that the trauma of white supremacy. He says that's an assumption that I'm somehow superior to other races supported by surrounding institutions. And he talks about how his dad modeled racial, racial justice. He came to Christ at 15 under John Wood, pastor at Cedar Springs, who was in South Carolina at the time. And he said, he was, he was with, a, with a black friend talking about racial injustice, and the friend said, you know, we didn't march through the streets of Birmingham to be your friend. We marched so our kids could live. And he decided uh, that he couldn't really pursue this calling in his church. He moved to Memphis. He moved his family uh, into an apartment, and he created a play on the sanitation workers' strike called, I, was it I Am a Man? Was that the posters at the Hilda? And you were probably, you lived there then, yeah. And uh, he now, his, his career now is, is, is supporting African-American artists in, in public art. And they, they called a black pastor to his church um, in September of 2017. Remember what happened in Charlottesville in September 2017? Uh, and the pastor said, I, I can't put my, my family through that. And then he ends with something that was just very moving about different ways the church can start to align with justice. You know, again, that directional component. He talks about educating. He talked about meeting extraction with investment. And he talked about social impact investment. I don't even know what that is. I just thought, I need to learn about that. That, is, that sounds powerful. I looked... The provision of finance to organizations addressing social needs with the explicit expectation of a measurable social as well as financial return. But here's what I was curious about. I've listened to it twice now. The guy is just so gifted and so powerful. It's just very stirring. Very moved. I think he's very prophetic. Here's, though, what bothered me. By the way, can I encourage you that whenever you hear a person handling the word of God, you pay as much attention to what bothers you as what you like. It's not a bad thing to disagree with me or be upset with me or think I missed it or read a text differently. It's actually a healthy thing. The Word of God can, can handle that. So I'm listening to this incredible sermon, and I think, man... Um, he felt like he couldn't be a prophet without leaving his church. And that's what, that's what he says. He says, my church, it was one dumb meeting after another. And so he had to leave. I, I, that bothers me because Ephesians 4.11 says what? That the prophets are given to equip the saints. 
And maybe they're to do other things too, but the first audience of the prophet is the people of God. Remember God's broader strategy? The church is to model the revolution that it wants to see in the world where we live by a different economics and we're a sacramental people, a witness to the world of God's strange ways. That's where it starts first. And yet it seems to me that most of our prophets have checked out a church and gone somewhere else. And here's my theory why. I'm sure it's not all true, but I don't think we know what to do with a prophet. So if you have that gift, I don't think you really have a place because we don't know where to put you. And you threaten me. And so you go write a book or go somewhere else. So what could it like for the prophetic to be at work here? I think that would be a fascinating conversation. Um, And I'm just dreaming here. I sketched a few things. One is, you know, painters and poets are often prophets. What if if we every month changed the art where we worshipped and had art where our our painters were were painting about different, uh, different areas of injustice and God's vision for healing? Prophets often work in certain areas. What if different people had expertise in different areas and uh, we had classes where you could come and learn about that? Uh, What if our writers and musicians would write plays and songs that we'd perform and sing on a regular basis in our worship space? What if we found a way to weave prophetic art and sacramental liturgy together and say every Lent we had an annual festival or play? What about a film festival? Dan Holbrook's been talking about this. Deb Scapebrook's been talking about this for years, where we offered great films and then reflected upon them with our neighbors, you know, gently sharing a Christian worldview. What if we had a writer's group where people working on different projects and research could come together and support each other, not just as writers in general, but as prophets with the unique challenges they face? What if that group got together and read, read Abraham Heschel? The, the rabbi that wrote the best book on prophecy. What if we created an online presence that thoughtfully and prayerfully reflected on the current events in our community and how they might better align with our vision? What if I was secure enough that you could actually come and tell me what you think? Or you could write a letter that we could take to the shepherding team and just be confident that we'd seriously, and you, where you're saying, look, you know, I, I think we're a little, out, I'm, you're a chiropractor. You know, I think we're a little out of adjustment here. <laughs> you know, there's kind of a violent move there to get back in line. What, what if we had that kind of a culture and our leadership was that secure? Doug, those are good ideas. Go for it. I don't know how to do it. I think you do, though. See, I hope we're getting this out of this Ephesians 4 text. It's it's a Trinitarian collaborative community. All these different gifts working together. What would happen if we came together and started to ask, okay, we're in this room, this space, we could probably use it during the week if we wanted to. We probably could use it on the weekends if we wanted. What, what could we do with it to prophesy?
well, let's not forget the last part of this little passage in Isaiah. You who put the Lord to remembrance, take no rest and give him no rest until he establishes Jerusalem and makes it a praise for his, his earth. In other words, there is an intercessory ministry for the prophet. There is a wrestling with God of the prophet and it's anguished. Jeremiah 8, 21 Since my people are crushed, I'm crushed, he prays. I mourn. Horror grips me. Is there no balm in Gilead? Is there no physician there? Why then is there no healing for the wound of my people? Oh, that my head were a spring of water and my eyes a fountain of tears. I would weep day and night for the slain of my people. That's the prayer life of a prophet. It's yucky. Turbulent. But that's where the the prophecy, that's where the word comes out of that wrestling with God. And if a prophet just becomes another vehicle of social justice or just operates out of their research or their wound or, or a maelstrom of Facebook anger and loses that connection to God, their ministry withers, they become angry and bitter, and the kingdom does not advance. And of course, let's always remember that we are new covenant people. And so any kind of prophetic ministry must be seen through the lens of the new covenant. It should focus on ultimately on Christ and his hope and grace and the power of the Holy Spirit in making all things new. If you don't have compassion in what you prophesy about, you are not connected to the compassion in God. That's just anger, and we've got too much of it now. You might be a prophet if you see more clearly than others how a community falls short of God's vision. Maybe you're that person that's going, don't you see this? Don't you, doesn't anybody else care what I see? That, that's kind of a prophetic burden. You've always been more troubled by injustice than other people. Your prayer life is often turbulent and characterized by wrestling with God. You have a vision of what life could be like if God's vision was fully realized. You sometimes feel lonely and unappreciated by the church and do not usually know how your gift serves the church. Now, when do prophets get into trouble? When they focus more on critique than hope? When they isolate and do not work closely with the other gifts in the body? When they let their disappointment with the church and society turn to despair? Let me just footnote that real quickly. That is a real challenge if you are a prophetic person and you see what others do not see and you wonder, I don't care about who's quarterbacking the Vols. Do you have any idea what we're doing to this group of people or that group of people? Does anybody see? I have a good friend who cares deeply for the environment. We have this conversation all the time. He's very intelligent. He knows a lot about the environment. And he, We went to see a movie. It's called First Reformed. Uh, I'd recommend it. It's very powerful, and, and I'll ruin it by telling you the opening scene. And so in the opening scene, there's a guy who's uh, obsessed with the envi- environmentalism, 
and the, 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 pro, the, the planet and the things that are happening on the planet, and he kills himself. And so it's become a touchstone with my friend because my friend identified with the person in the scene. And we keep talking about how do you stay awake and not lose all your hope? That's really hard, isn't it? Whatever your issue is, how do you stay awake and not lose all your hope? Prophets get into trouble when they demand that everyone around them see what they see and immediately respond. And prophets get into trouble when they fail to balance a rich inner life with a powerful prophetic voice. Well, I would like Jana and Chantel to come up now. I've both seen both of these women operate in powerfully prophetic ways, and Jana's going to talk a little bit to Chantel about this ministry. All right. Um, so I'm just going to ask you, Chantel, to describe your journey with the prophetic a little bit. Yeah. Mm. If I had to describe it, I think the word that I would use would be grace. Um, because I actually, I started hearing God's voice when I was really young. I was about four or five, and I would just hear <laughs> a man's voice. And, you know, I'm like, what the heck? <laughs> what is this? Like, oh, my God. And so... You know, I want to go watch Stay by the Bell. Leave me alone. And so, <laughs> so I did that. And then when I was about 13, um, I really gave my life to Christ and started um, just developing deep, intentional relationship with him um, and understanding, like, what it meant to hear his voice. And out of that place of just spending time with him, enjoying him, God would begin to sort of share his heart um, to me about the body of Christ um, and community, people that I was in relationship with. Um, I think, yeah, I was, I was about 13 when God really began to broke my, break my heart about the concept of unity in the body of Christ and how, um, how such a peaceful, loving, consistent, merciful God um, could have people that didn't love each other well and and didn't love the very people who he created us to love well, well, the world. Um, And so, man, over the years, I have um, had a lot of awesome moments of, you know, the Lord giving me really cool divine appointments and saying, turn left or turn right, and, you know, having really cool assignments where people are receptive and grateful and a lot of moments where I walked away thinking oh my gosh I was too harsh or I wasn't um, kind enough or I was too kind I wasn't harsh enough or um, I don't know if they're ever going to talk to me again (laughs) and God was that really you did I miss you Um, and so and I still ask those questions you know many years later Um, but I think what God has really cultivated in me is the okayness with just abiding in him and allowing whatever he shares with me to flow out um, and making sure that what is shared is tempered with his love for his creation and with an abundance of mercy and grace. So I pray a lot (laughs) 
one of my favorite things to do is just to spend time with the Lord. If I could like go to the cabin for nine months and just be by myself, I'm that person, and just lay out with him and worship and just hear and weep and, and ask, um, that's what I would do. So, Could you just tell a little bit about how other people have responded to you as you live in this gift? Yeah, yeah. So... Um, yeah, like I said, I think some, some people are receptive, some people are freaked out. (laughs) So there have been like really, you know, cool opportunities to me. I don't know about other people where God might share something and someone's just like overwhelmed and shocked and just doesn't know what to do with the fact that, um, God could, could know them so intimately and maybe use someone else to share his, his love for them. Um, so there's, there's a lot of, you know, sweet moments where people are like very, very grateful and responsive and, oh my gosh, and, you know, let's be friends forever. (laughs) And then there's other moments where, um, the words that I share are not as well received. And I think that's what's really hard, right? Because we want to be liked. Well, I want to be liked. I don't know about y'all. I want to be liked. I want to be loved. I want to be accepted and Sometimes when you're, um, as God parents us, his words don't always feel that way. But we know that his intention is to bring us closer to his heart um, and to align us with his heart. And so I, um, in those moments where it's difficult and I'm like, oh gosh, (laughs) I have to remember that like, man, what I'm saying, like if if I'm in tune with God's heart is like an expression of his love for someone and his ultimate desire for the body and for individuals in the body is that we would align with him. Because we, he knows when we're in, align, in alignment with him, we experience him in his fullness. We experience life on earth in his fullness. We um, become the bride, the beautiful bride that is, you know, blemish-free and spotless that we're working to become. Um, so, yeah, sometimes I cry when I'm done talking to someone. Sometimes I'm like, cool, that was not so bad. But ultimately, it's remembering, ah, it's not about me. It's actually, it's about the work that God is doing and his love for his people and me choosing to abide in that um, and know that he knows the process. I just get to be a part of this little part, maybe, but he, he knows the beginning from the end. So, <laughs> Thanks, Chantel. <laughs>